Are you looking to sharpen your command and leadership skills? The 2024 Blue Card Hazard Zone Conference is coming back to the Sharonville Convention Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, September 30th through October 4th. Immerse yourself in five days of targeted command education and leadership training at the 2024 Blue Card Hazard Zone Conference. This is your opportunity to recharge your command skills and stay at the forefront of incident command best practices. This year, we've added a certification lab, September 30th through October 2nd. Also added a May Day workshop, October 1st to October 2nd. The general conference is on October 3rd and 4th. The May Day workshop is filling up fast, and our early bird pricing of $415 each for the general conference is a limited time offer. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Register now at HazardZoneBC.com. Welcome to B-Shifter. I'm your host, John Vance. Thanks for joining us on this episode. We'll be talking with Don Abbott, who heads up ProjectMayday.net. Don has been a fire chief and ran one of the first command simulations back in the 90s with his wife, Bev, as they toured the country with his Abbottville command simulation classes. Don later went on to work for Chief Alan Brunacini at the Phoenix Command Training Center, helping with computer simulations. Since his retirement from Phoenix, Don has been collecting data on Maydays and trying to get to the root cause in order to help prevent them from happening. He and his group have studied over 10,000 Maydays, and they are publishing information on projectmayday.net that has shed light on emerging issues such as sleep deprivation in the fire service, emotional issues, and their proximal causes related to Maydays and air management, just to name a few. We'll get into it in detail with Don here. We're also joined on this episode by Blue Card Program Manager and co-host, Josh Bloom. So sit back and enjoy B-Shifter with Don Abbott. Thanks for being here today. It's really good to see you, and thanks for all the work. We haven't got to see you, you know, through the pandemic mm-hmm. and everything else. So it's really nice to connect with you again, and you continue to feed us a lot of great information in the American Fire Service. And I think you and I also. I was thinking about this last night. We have the distinction as we both work for fire departments that no longer exist, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I was at Harris. You were at the Warren Township, yes. right? Yeah. And uh, that no longer exists. No longer, but we're still working. So yes. that's good. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. And, and first of all, I just want to talk a little bit about the Mayday Project. And I think it's important that people understand the work that goes behind that data collection. So where does it start? And then kind of explain the different components of that for us, okay. too. The person that started this all out was was uh, Bruno. Uh, multiple discussions at classes on why we were traveling and those kinds of things and realizing that... that uh, there was no data. You know, everybody talked about near misses and everybody talked about uh, May days, but nobody really had numbers. And uh, we were talking about something we really didn't have the facts on. So basically, we started out uh, uh, looking at May days in general. And uh, as the numbers started to roll in, 
we could see that uh, uh, there was more May days than I think what we realized. We think we now get about 22 to 25% of the May days that occur. We get, we get about seven a day and on the average. And uh, we're right now, uh, we've been doing this for six years. We're now over the 10,000 mark. And uh, so um, we've developed and, and saw patterns and trends, things that we know are problems and that have continually either gotten worse because we haven't addressed them or have gotten better because we did address them and we did some training. So we're hoping that this really pays off in, in the end, that the data and the information we provide is a foundation for an organization to take the information and the data and update their own training and to protect their people and uh, prevent May days, because that's what this is really about. We're here to prevent them more than we are probably anything else. With the data that you get, it's self-reporting. Yes. A, a department brings that to you. For the most part. Uh, we have now uh, five states where the fire marshal uh, has dictated to the fire service in those states that if they have a May Day, they have to submit that May Day to their office within 48 hours. And then when they get it, they send it to us. And we do some of the legwork for them, which is okay because we get the data. But, uh, yeah, for the most part, it's self-reporting. And, and a part of that data is you're actually listening to the radio traffic and you get some other yes, information. Yes, uh, when we first get notification, uh, we try to establish a contact person within the fire department. And we ask, there's a list of things we ask for. There's three things initially, the audio tape of the incident, uh, a transcript of the incident, if there may be one. Um, and the third thing is... Uh, we'd like to uh, have a copy of the tactical worksheet that the incident commander used, uh, which in and of itself has been everything from a legal pad uh, to uh, uh, a form. And Bruno would be proud, even a napkin, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, so uh, that's what we asked for initially. And then when we get that information, we asked for five more additional things copies of SOPs on May Day procedures, writ team operations, those kinds of things, training uh, on May Days and writ, uh, what those curriculums look like. Um, Then we uh, ask for individual interview time uh, with the victim, with the incident commander, and with the company officer of that victim. So, and then when we get that back, we send out another notice and we ask for five more things. And uh, career departments have been good about that because there's a lot of information that we're asking for that takes a little bit of time and energy to do. Um, we're up to almost 4,000 uh, May days from the volunteer service, uh, which we don't include into the career. Uh, they're a standalone, just like the career are. Uh, and it's difficult for them. So my wife sort of uh, pairs up with whoever their representative is, and she sort of walks them through it. She does a lot of the work with the volunteer fire departments. She does a lot of work to begin with, but she does more so with the, with the volunteer departments. So, Did you notice some tra- – because I was looking at the 2020 career versus volunteer, and I, I noticed some 
disparities. I yes. mean, what, what, what do you see in this, this time around between the volunteer and the career? The disparities are pretty much the same. I mean, to a certain extent, um, I think the one thing that we're truly probably, uh, most proud of is the fact that what was number one three years ago falls through the roof is now number three. And for the volunteers, it's like four or five because they don't get on roofs. If for the most part, they don't do roof ventilation like most career departments do, regardless of manning or staffing issues or equipment issues or whatever it might, training or whatever it might be. So there, when we, when I talk to volunteer groups, we're talking about, um, some different problems. Now, they have the same number one issue that we have in the career service. And basically, that is uh, getting lost or separated off hose lines. That is number one. It represents almost 20% of our May Days. For the volunteers, it's 27% of the May Days that we're starting to see now. So. Let's take a quick break. Enhance fire ground leadership with our critical thinking and strategic decision-making class designed to strengthen incident command through the functions of command and foster a safer, more effective decision-making process for fire service professionals. The only critical thinking and strategic decision-making class at the Allen V. Brunacini Command Training Center in Phoenix, Arizona is May 22nd and 23rd. Sign up at bshifter.com. Don, before we before we go too much further, um, I think it's important that we we tell everybody because we're saying self reporting, and indeed it is. It's whatever information that they're willing to, to give you and collect. But right. you're verifying information oh, yes. too. So I think it's important that we talk about that because there's data flying all over the fire service that is that is indeed self reporting. And it's just whatever I decided to tell you, and then nobody verifies it. So can you just talk briefly about how do you verify some of this information? Um, we're pretty straightforward. Um, in a letter that I sent early to the chief, it basically in that letter uh, states that we, in order to include your May Day into our system, there are certain requirements that have to be met. And if you don't meet them, we will not include them in our data because uh, that's our, uh, what I refer to as that as our verification that what you're presenting is, is, is correct. And it's not what you're presenting. It's the facts of what actually happened. Because I think in, in general, we're, we all sort of don't want to uh, be the bad guy or we don't want to air our dirty laundry. But in order to get the data that we've got, that's what we've got to do. And sometimes they're a little leery of that. And I always tell them, I never mention fire department names or never put any fire department names out there unless I have their permission. And if I have their permission uh, and it's in writing, then we'll share whatever uh, that department submitted. But otherwise, I don't mention names uh, because I want to keep this confidential. But at the same time, those who... We're seeing where before at the beginning of this, the first two or three years, about 8% of the departments, you know, would freely associate their name along with the May Day. That number is closer now to almost 20%. So it's going up. And I think it's mainly because we're trying to explain to them that your May Day 
is not so much different than somebody else's May Day somewhere else in the country or a May Day that's going to happen down the road. So share what your May Day was, what you learned from your May Day, and how they might prevent it in the near future. So, so I think one other thing, is, you know, the just so people understand it, and in your in your website, you clearly, I think, explain it. But it's not just it's not just you. There's there's a group of people right yes. that are working on this. So it's a huge undertaking. And I mean, I say thank you over and over again for all the work you're doing with it and everything you're putting out about it. And it's it's important. I think people realize that this is truly validated information yes. and data, not. Uh, not a not a one person sent me this, and this is this is what I'm going to put no, out we, there. So the group of people working on, it, I think, that if we can just talk a little bit about that. Sure, um, I have what I call eight professionals. Uh, these are uh, doctors. Uh, last year or year before last, we brought on an uh, an epidemiologist who retired out of the CDC, uh, moved here to be closer to his uh, daughter, and. Uh, sort of got him roped into volunteering some of his time and energy. Uh, and he did well up until the pandemic, and then he got a, re- a real job locally. And uh, But now he's back with us because that job pretty much uh, finished. Um, we brought on an audiologist, uh, Dr. McNeil, who has been oh, uh, a saint in this because um, we have saw a large number of May Days taking place where hearing aids have either melded onto the ear or into the ear. And uh, so it's become an issue that we've been putting out there that that if your department doesn't have a policy about people wearing hearing aids, you need to develop one. Not to say that it shouldn't be a, a thing that you use to exclude somebody, but you need to be aware that uh, uh, I've got some pictures that we use on our website that, that uh, aren't very pretty to look at, but they're firefighters who either had uh, a hearing aid melt on top of their ear or actually melted in their ear. Most of those uh, who had the hearing aid uh, melt into their ear. And then we have 24 advisory board members. Uh, uh, there are all of them have had uh, five of them are firefighters who've had May Days. Five are company officers whose crews had May Days. Um, four battalion chiefs, uh, three safety officers, um, three training officers, uh, and three chiefs that sort of make up our advisory board. And uh, uh, we try to meet the week before FDIC every year. Last year, we, we did a Zoom thing, which went okay, but it's still not as good as getting face-to-face. And uh, our plan is we're meeting the last week in July, uh, just before FDIC in Indianapolis. And uh, we'll talk about everything we've learned from the previous year and what we want to do next year and the next two years, uh, sort of putting together a game plan. And uh, so those people, the advisory board people, all of whom, all eight of them who are doctors, uh, with the exception of two, uh, those people are uh, professionals and they're doctors and they volunteer their time just like the advisory board. We brought on two peop- two new people this year, or actually last end of last year. Uh, one used to work for an SCBA manufacturer, so he knows pretty much the ins and outs of the SCBAs. And one of them used to work for the major 
uh, radio uh, communications people that we've brought on board who has been working with us in regards to frequency fame and some of the issues that are out there about problems with communications. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, I think it's important that we just make sure that people understand where the information comes from that, that, I know, appreciate you're, that. that you're putting out there because, like I said, I can do a study and put it out on the Internet, and if somebody <laughs> reads it, they oh, well, here it is. Here's the latest. And it's like, well, how's it verified, and how'd you come up with all the information, and who's really involved with it? So, Yeah, it takes us about, on the average, uh, somewhere between 50 and 75 days for that May date actually get into our data because we want to confirm, you know, we just, especially when you start getting into to what I call the root causes, you know, uh, that's when you've got to talk to the victim, you got to talk to the company officer, and you need to talk to the incident commander, you know, you know, why did this happen? When did it happen? And, you know, and could we have prevented it? And uh, so if you don't have those conversations, you know, uh, you're just taking somebody at their word that, you know, this was a, you know, a freak thing. Well, maybe it wasn't, you know, uh, especially when you look at departments, you know, uh, that have more May days than others. I guess that's probably the best way to be polite, the politically correct way to say it, that uh, have more May days than others. Well, why is that? And there's a lot of reasons we're seeing for that. Uh, training, uh, freelancing, uh, um, one of the problems that we see, and, and it's it's a it's a consistently uh, significant problem, is we don't enforce our SOPs. Uh, we'll enforce the SOP that you look sloppy and you're out of uniform, and we'll send you home. But the guy who violates the SOP out on the fire ground then ends up getting himself hurt or somebody else. You know, well, you know. It, it, you know, it's a, you know, it's an accident. Those things happen. You know, no, no, there's a violation there. You know, just like the uniform violation, but we ignore it. Were you at the table next to us at breakfast today? Because uh, that's no, exactly no, really? what we were talking about. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, no, but I, I've had these conversations with a lot of people, and uh, it's 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 you know, I read their SOP. You know, and, okay, their SOP says they shouldn't be doing this. You know. Uh, so I, I'll email whoever I'm, my con, my point person is and say, uh, I've read your SOP and it says this and you did this. It doesn't match up. Well, we don't always follow our SOPs. Uh, uh, we have training rules and SOPs. No, they got to be the same, you know, or close. Mm-hmm. You can't, they can't be 180s. Uh, so, you know, it's an issue. I, I, and I've, I believe that the most important person on a fire department is a company officer because they're supervising 24 hours a day on the shift where a battalion chief maybe sees them twice a day. Maybe if you're lucky, chief probably doesn't see him, but maybe once every two weeks or so. So that company officer is a critical component, yet company officers are not doing their jobs. And I know if you're a company officer out there, uh, uh, you know, I probably turned you off, but the reality is it's not all of you. It's just the ones who decide and pick and choose what SOPs they want to follow and what ones they want to ignore. And it can't be that way. You can't pick and choose those things. And departments need to have a solid process in place to address that. So yes. if if you have an SOP that is on the books, 
that you're not following. It needs to come off the books and you need to review the SOPs on a regular basis to make sure that they are still germane to your organization and still being followed. And, you know, they're, you know, we, we've come up, you know, like white powder SOPs. Yes. Okay. That happened after 9-11, 19, 20 years ago. We, we, you know, that, that's, that's come off the books because we're just not maintaining that. Correct. I, we had a May day we got in uh, March and I'm reading the SOPs and the date on the SOP for the May days is 11 years old. Never been reviewed, never been rewritten. You know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot has changed in 11 years. I don't care what fire department it is. Things change, you know, and, uh, it's, I guess we we ignore the easy things. That's an easy fix, and we we sort of bear, I don't want to say we bury our heads in our sand, in the sand, but the reality is we just don't pay a great deal of attention to some of the details that we should. Yes, you know, and I think, and as I said earlier, you guys said you talked about this at breakfast. I think when I listen, when I read these SOPs, and then when you listen to these audio tapes. They don't match up. You know, you're thinking to yourself, okay, you know, what's the problem here? And part of it is, is they're not enforcing their SOPs on the fire ground. So, you know, we, we talk a lot about the whole SOP thing and, you know, far too often the SOP comes from the, the administration and there's really no training on it. Right. So we really don't set that expectation of what the SOP is. So, you know, it's... <laughs> Really, that SOP has to connect to everybody, and everybody has to be on the same page. And and so often, it's just like, oh, we push an SOP out. It looks good. We had to have it. Somebody said we needed to have it, but we really didn't go over it and talk about it. And I see that over and over and over again when we go to organizations that are that we're doing training with that have a Mayday SOP. And it's like, have you ever exercised this ever? And the answer is no. Like ninety five plus percent of the time, the Mayday SOP. They read it. It's never been exercised in a training environment. They don't talk about it. And they put it out. Somebody signs it. Yep, I saw it. And it's like, do you really think that's going to work when somebody says mayday, 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 if they're not familiar with it? It might be the best practice out there, but it's just not going to happen if we don't train on it. Exactly. And sometimes, you know, we put those SOPs out there just because we're supposed to or people expect us to, and nobody trains on it. You know, I'm a firm believer that you got to train on an SOP before you put it out. So, you know, one of the best chiefs I ever had when an SOP came out, there was the SOPs were always on, in, on a yellow page, but there was a pink page attached to it, and it was his interpretation of the SOP. So you knew where the chief stood, you know, and, and everybody always read the pink page first because on there it said, if you violate this SOP, it could be one day off, or it could be three days off, or it could be termination, you know. So everybody read the pink page before they read the yellow page because they knew what wasn't going to happen if you didn't follow the yellow page. And I don't, and I, I don't think that's happening these days. I, don't, I think we, we say these, we give it a lot of lip service, but we just don't follow up with it. You know, I can remember uh, here in Phoenix when at the CTC, uh, when we were looking at a variety of principles that we were going to put into practice on deck was one of them. And, and May Day was another, and we would actually write to May Day or write to the SOP in through simulations at the CTC exercise, all three shifts 
and then come back and rewrite it based on what we learned. And I think we went through five, six, uh, you know, variations of the May Day SOP before we got it right. And it's one of the things that Bruno said, when we put this out, it's going to be right. You know, I'm not going to change it six weeks from now because it didn't work. Let's make sure it's right. And so, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Hinton, John, uh, and Terry Garrison, and Nick, uh, you know, they're the ones that spearheaded and put the thing in, and came and practiced it every shift. I mean, you know, they came to the CC, uh, CTC. We brought the battalion chiefs in. We ran through the same one, saw some of the same issues on every shift, rewrote it, and then, you know, tried another one. Ah, we got to tweak this in a little bit because it didn't work in that particular for whatever reason. So I think a lot of it is the fact that, that we rely on these SOPs thinking that they're, they're the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And the reality is when Moses come down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, it didn't work because nobody was going to practice it. You know, it's the same way here. You know, we've got to practice it and make sure it works before we implement it. Before we get back into your, your project, um, I just want to talk about command training a little bit and your involvement in it. You've probably been doing command training since before I was in the fire service. So how, how did you start with command training? And then what are you finding out there right now with the information that you're getting? How many people are actually doing command training? We started at, when I go back and, uh, we, we recently went back and looked at our, our own personal archives. We started doing command training in, in basically 1991. And then in 1993, I built Abbottville, which was a diorama that uh, was 12 by 12 feet and had 300 plus buildings on it. And they, we burned them and smoked them and everything else. And that's how I taught command training was, is that using radios, uh, having them place the little fire truck and lay the hose, or if they didn't lay their, the right size hose. And then what did they do with their little men, you know, that uh, all that kind of stuff. And today, simulations has sort of taken that that same approach, but made it better because you can redo these things much quicker than what I could on my, my tabletop. But I think the thing that we're seeing that, to me is a little bit alarming and I want to go through through it sort of from two, two sides. One of the things is, is we need to train company officers in May day operations because 30 plus percent of most May days take place before a battalion chief gets there. And if a company officer doesn't know how to run a May day, they're in trouble, you know? So I think, We've got to extend some of that officer development training. The second thing that we're seeing in our data is we're, we see a lot of May days that do not go well. And I will say they're, they're close to 65 to 70% that do not go well because the person is the IC is a right out captain, somebody that for whatever reason, uh, the, the normal BC's on vacation, so I'm going to move a captain up and have him take his place. Well, has that captain been trained to the same level? What has changed since since you started collecting this data? What are the mm-hmm. trends that you're seeing right now? Well, the one thing that we're seeing that, and it may not be, 
It may not be a trend. It may have been there to begin with. We weren't, we didn't ask some of these questions early and we didn't get some of the responses that we probably needed to get, but we're seeing a large number of concussions. And, you know, if you stop and think about how concussions are now being handled in sports, how are we as the fire service handling concussions? Probably pretty piss poor, you know, in regards to, you know, you know, a guy comes out of the building and says, man, that ceiling come down, drove me to my knees. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, maybe he needs to be checked out or make sure that the company also knows you need to watch this guy, you know, uh, and so forth. And I, concussions is one of those things. The hearing aid issue uh, is another one of those things. Communications. Um, I think the one thing, if, if, if there's, if I had the money and if there's one thing I could fix around the country, it would be to make sure that every fire department could talk to their neighboring fire department. You know, they would have that capability. We don't see that. You know, there are fire departments where battalion chiefs are carrying three radios so they can talk to their mutual aid. <laughs> Try and, you know, with no help. You know, I'm sitting in this thing and what department was, okay, you know, what which radio was that? And that's killing us right now. I mean, it's getting people in significant trouble uh, because we are slow to respond for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, gosh, that's that engine. They're not from my department, but they're having a May Day. I need to make sure their chief knows, that, you know, well, no, you need to take care of the May Day because it's your scene. They're your problem, you know, regardless of what department they're from. So th those three things. And I guess probably as as much as anything, um, we're seeing uh, sleep deprivation as being a big upcoming issue. Uh, and what sleep deprivation does to people that work 48s and 72s, especially if uh, there's any depression or anxiety involved, uh, uh, if they're you know, had a fight with their wife when before they came to work that morning or the kids didn't want to go to school, you know, anything that sets them out of their norm when they start to work. And we're starting to see some of that. We weren't asking these questions five years ago, three years ago. Yeah, five to three years ago. We weren't asking those questions. Now we are. And, and what we're seeing um, is a wake-up call, I think, to the fire service that we've got to take that issue more serious than what we've done in the past. That, that's that's all really good information. So are we, you know, Bruno always used to say, we're not finding any new ways to really get ourselves into trouble. So is there anything that stands out like a new way or should we really be have, have learned over the last 50 years from a whole lot of events? I think we should have learned from a whole lot of events, but um, there are patterns to what we see. Um, if you go in with a crew of four people, Probably the person we, in most cases, and I think it's it's in the high 50% range, uh, the person that's most likely to have the May Day is the engineer. Because that engineer probably only goes in on one out of every 12 fires. Probably hasn't worn an air pack in recent months. And when you go to training, where does that engineer, what does he do? He pumps the engine. He ain't going in as part of your crew. And we're seeing a lot of situations where the engineers are being 
because they're older, they got more experience to a certain extent, put in situations they probably shouldn't be put into simply because, well, they're the engineer, you know, we've worked together for 10 years, you know, and you've been on the job 20 years, so I'll give you the leeway. I wouldn't give somebody that's got three or four years on. The problem is, is that we don't make them part of the crew except when we need to. And we need to do that in training. So I think if we did it in training, those numbers would drop. But I think because we sort of, you know, the engineers out at the truck, that's where they stay until we need them. Now, all of a sudden, we don't need them at the truck because we're going to be a crew of four going in. Um, they are the weak link in most systems that, that we're seeing. So you brought up a bit. So you're saying four person staffing, right? And and we know in our country that that's that's it, not happening. Th- no. there, it's very few and far between. But since you brought it up, I'll ask the question: Is sure are, are you seeing more maydays in fire departments and staffing that where they got four persons on a fire truck or threes know? and fours? Yeah, threes and fours. And the reason why is it's it, uh, the main reason why, especially in two of the categories, mainly lost and separated from hosts is because I think we have this mindset that as either the company officer or as a firefighter going in, that we can do more because we have more. I think when you go in with a crew of two, you sort of don't go in quite as quick. You don't go in quite as far. You don't get off the hose line quite as far because it's just two of you. Where there's a crew of four, you have a tendency maybe to do things that you normally wouldn't, that that you would do simply because you think you can get away with it. And and I think that's what we're seeing a little bit. But the the largest number of May Days is with crews of three, uh, then fours and then twos. And, I, and when we did all of our interviews with the victims and so forth and then the company officers, you know, when we talked to the company officers who had a two-person crew, you know, their thing was, uh, you know, there's just two of us. I'm not going to let him get very far away. And to sort of go add on to that, you know, one of the things that we've that was brought to our attention starting about four years ago, we started asking the question more and more. And now it's part of our routine, part of our survey. But most firefighters do not know how far, how much hose they have taken in until they run out. <laughs> you know, that's when they figured out, instead of a crew of four having somebody, and we're talking about residents, big box, that, you know, it's a little bit different story. But in a residence, it's, you, just, you need that person feeding the hose at the door. And every time a coupling goes by, you know, you guys got 100 feet, you guys got 150 feet, you know, you have 200 feet, that's it, you know. We need to be sort of announcing those things over the radio to the crew inside so they've got an idea just how much hose they've got in there. And you're thinking, it's only a 1,500-square-foot house, and we've got 200 feet of hose in here? Where's the loops at? You know, where, have we, where are we going to get in trouble? And we don't do that. So that's something that we've sort of been promoting is, is if you have a crew of four and maybe even a crew of three, you don't necessarily have to leave the person at the door with the crew of three, but somebody needs to be you know, checking on uh, the hose. Uh, a fairly large career department uh, just recently, uh, they, they spent a ton of money to do it, but uh, they've basically colored, 
The first 100-foot section is red because it's the hot. The next section is orange. Next 50-foot section, they're all in 50. So you know if in your hands you've got green hose, it's 150 feet, you know. That's an expensive way of doing it, but I'm interested to see what their, you know, what their statistics are here in, in a couple of years. Because they had a, they had three back-to-back May days involving people getting off hose lines, and you know somebody come up and said, "Hey, I think you know I got an idea." So they went and, and uh, equipped one battalion, uh, four engines, and uh, and they actually have some attack line on a uh, an arrow ladder because it has a pump. Uh, with this layup, everybody come back and said, hey, man, this is great. Let's do it department-wide. So they're doing it department-wide now. But uh, I think sometimes we just don't know how, you know, we just had a, a May Day here in the Valley recently, and they, they're, they're, they're 300 feet into the building. Wow. What? It, and it is a commercial building, but why? And they're on a second level. They actually went up as well. You know, and you're thinking, you know, this is a lot of hose. Do we need to really be in here this deep? Not, and they had zero visibility. When they got to the second floor, that's what they reported to command. We have zero visibility. We need somebody to help us with our hose, move the hose. Those two don't connect, you know. Being in zero visibility and we need help moving hose, those two things don't sort of connect up. And then 46 seconds later, it's getting hotter in hell in here. Now add that into the equation. We need to be backing out. Didn't do it. Went in a little, about 30 more feet. Got caught in a flyover. Sometimes, again, like I've said before, we're our own worst enemies because we've gotten away with it in the past. We'll get away with it now. Things change. You know, more and more plastics, you know, uh, more and more things that when they burn, they, they, they burn at a very high rate of, uh, of heat output and put out some of the blackest smoke you would ever see. You'd think you have a tire fire. But if you looked at what's burning, it is probably three or four old tires that have been recycled, you know, into a rug, you know, that kind of stuff. So so you said something there, and I don't want to get too far away from it without without going there. Uh, it seems like in our industry, we're really good at throwing tools at trying to solve the problem. So... I'm just, I'll just give you, you said, you know, fire department has some people and they get off the hand line, lost, disoriented, whatever, maybe went too far. So they're going to, they're going to change some hose so that that can remind people where they are, right? Got three firemen, got burnt. Oh, we're going to increase the TPP rating on our turnout gear. <laughs> I had firemen run out of air. So we're going to increase how much air that we carry. So, I mean, do you, do you see that? I mean, you've been oh, around yeah. a long time, but that's not solving the problem. Right? No, it's you know, not. It, we're, it, it, we're, we're really good at solving. I, I always tell people those are band-aids and excuses that, that you're not fixing the problem and you're, you're, you're not addressing the problem as a fix. You're just putting a band-aid on something that is going to happen again. You know, it's just like, well, we, let's give everybody a radio and so everybody will be able to communicate. Yeah, that doesn't work either. You know, I mean, then you don't get any airtime to report your May Day because everybody's on the radio, you know, type stuff. Even though those radios are important to be in people's hands, it doesn't mean they have that just because I give 38 people a radio at the scene of a fire doesn't mean they all have to talk. You know, uh, most of them should be listening, not talking. 
Again, that's a training issue, right? Yes. And yes. we buy radios, we gave them to them, then tell them what to do with them. Yes. Yeah. Or the orange buttons. You yeah. Know? You know, the, I've, I think the one thing I've learned, there are more policies on the use of the EA button in this country than there is anything else. I mean, there are some policies that you're wondering, what the hell are we doing? Let's take those buttons off the radio. You know, we're not, we're doing a disservice to ourselves. For most fire, most cities, when we buy radios, it's for the cops. And we have to fit into what the cops want. And as a result, the EA buttons, uh, for a cop, you push the EA button for most cops, especially with the new radios. When you push that EA button, it lets dispatch know that I'm in a situation where don't talk to me. I will talk to you because they don't want that, you know, over the air. But we're putting that EA button out there. And a lot of people don't realize that when you push that button, because the radios were purchased under a bulk, that when you push that button, nobody's going to talk to you because that's the police policy. We have a May Day that that's exactly what happened. The, the fireman pushed the EA button, and it was dead silence. He could, he could talk to command, but, you know, dispatcher, nobody else was answering him because of the way their system was developed. So they went back and spent $2.4 million to fix the problem. And that was that we we shouldn't have cop radios. We need fire radios. And Motorola is getting better at that. Prices, so so is the price of those radios. So, yes, they they have gone up. Oh yes, and, they and, have gone up. And my department, until this last cycle, we were we were using hand me down cop radios. So they weren't even new cop radios. They were the, the police department's done with it now. Now the fire department can have it because they're just going to rack them, right? Yes. Now, what else are we seeing as far as trends when it comes to command, like establishment of command, uh, command being stationary versus mobile? Still, that stationary mobile stuff. Stationary mobile is still a – I think we're starting to see really good numbers on, on 360s. Uh, if what, we, what we're still finding is if it, the first unit doesn't do the 360, probably it doesn't get done for at least four to six minutes. Yeah, so if that first unit doesn't do a 360, it probably ain't going to happen until the BC gets there. You need to be sitting in your vehicle on a 50-watt radio so that you don't miss the May Day. We, we have our data now shows that a lot of these May Days are being missed because people are being in a mobile position rather than in a fixed stationary position. So, you know, we're, again, it's we're on worst enemies to a certain extent. We've got to get in a vehicle, stay in a vehicle. And it's just not the radios. I mean, I've, I've watched uh, videos no. of May Days where yeah. the IC has the radio in his back pocket yeah. Having conversation with people while the mayday is being transmitted, and they never even realize it. They never yes. hear it, yeah, because of all those distractions and not being in a good communication position. Well, do you have anything else that you have discovered recently, or, or something you'd like people to know about that uh, we didn't cover yet today? I, I think that I, I think what I said near the beginning was is that we've got to do a better job of making sure that company officers can run a command-level mayday. Uh, and because, like I said, we're seeing a, you know, a large 30-plus percent of maydays are being run by company officers because there's no battalion chief there yet. So we need to extend what we are teaching 
our battalion chiefs in this area, in May Days in particular, or RID operations. And it's awful hard to, if you have a crew inside that's having a May Day and there's only two crews outside, it's, it's going to be pretty tough to do a RID operation correctly. But I think what we need to do is we need to extend some of that command training that we're giving our battalion chiefs to our company officers. You know, uh, I've been a fan a long time that, that if you got company officers who are senior in their position and are going to move up or ride up as battalion chiefs or whatever, they need to have the same training as the guy that was sitting in that seat you pay every day. You know, that we sh- and we are doing a disservice to our people if we just pluck a captain out. Well, today you're the battalion chief, you know thinking that they know what they're supposed to do when probably they don't, especially in running a May Day. So we need to extend some of that command-level training that we do for the company officers in particular. And the trend continues that May Days are being resolved from the inside from out. From the inside out, yes. That, that, number that hasn't even, changed, right? That number has actually grown. Okay. We're doing a much better job of, of, them, of self-rescue or the crew, initial crew making the rescue. Um, that those numbers are up almost seven percent, which may not seem like a lot, but it is when you look at ten thousand May Days. Uh, that's a pretty significant number, you know. Um, and the written numbers are down a little bit. And part of the reason, I think, is is probably two reasons. Uh, one is is that writ teams are not being we don't utilize them the way we probably should. And the second is is that we expect a crew of four going in uh, to make the rescue. The rea- they're going to assist those crews that are inside getting that guy out. Those crews inside are already near out of air. They've got to come out. So if you're sending four people in thinking you're doing an eight-person rescue team, it's actually a four-person rescue team, and they got to do that, whatever it is. And the other, I think the third thing, and actually it's the number one thing, I guess. I should have started with it is that when RIT teams go in most of the time, they don't take the right equipment because they don't know what the May Day actually is. You know, they're just told, hey, you got a May Day, guy's in the basement, okay? They don't say that, you know, he's got a broken leg or that he's trapped or whatever it might be. They ju- they're just going in with the RIT bag, okay? You know, uh, you can only do so much with that RIT bag. Maybe you need a Stokes basket. Maybe you need a backboard. Maybe you need some uh, a saw or whatever, and all of a sudden they get in there and they got to call outside that delays the rescue because we didn't ask the right command, didn't ask the right questions initially. So it slows the rescue down. So it's again a sort of a command issue to a certain extent. But at the same time, it's us not utilizing RIT teams the way we should. And good command training. Because yeah. that uh, when, when we simulate Maydays, that's exactly one of the things that we, we, uh, Make sure that people know that Mayday can report will give you what you need to take with you in order to, to mitigate the Mayday. Well, Don, we appreciate all the hey, work that you no continue to do uh, and the and the great information you, you feed to us. Um, projectmayday.net is where you can find all of that. And yes. uh, we look forward to getting more updates from you as we go Good. along. Thank, okay. Thanks, Don. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. And that wraps up this edition of B-Shifter. I want to thank Don Abbott for being here. 
This is part one of a two-part discussion. I hope you join us next time as Josh Bloom and I will get together and discuss the data that Don is cranking out and how do we address that in the American Fire Service. Until next time, thanks for listening to B-Shifter. Please be safe.